Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra stabby edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast that hopes Gail and Sydney Prescott No Friends is on before Party of Five. And speaking of Scott No Friends, I'm Aaron and I'm joined as usual by the rootinest, tootinest cowboy in the whole darn West. It's Mr. J Wags. All right, he's rehearsing. It's Matt the Quizmaster. Hello, Matt? Oh shit, he's asleep. It's 3 a.m. So it's Spencer the Broadway. No, oh wait, Scott, no friends. Oh, I'm so lonely. Anyways, guess what, Aaron? What, Aaron? We have another legendary diva joining us from a galaxy far, far away. So I better whip out my DVD collection because this man is literally in 80% of it. So enjoy a view from a bridge for a moment before we hold our breath and prepare for a deep impact as we jump into this big reverential list of credits that's longer than the Mississippi and could flood a streaming service since he soaked up his second city studies and scorched up the silver screen in backdraft before the babe was drafted on draft day into baseball and became rookie of the year by catching with excessive force. And whilst hitting home runs beneath the harvest sky, this Kentucky fired chook has been a cop, crook, comrade or cowboy, sacred or not, in every cop clinical comedy or country fire tv show since he ventured up angel street with the untouchables of bakersfield pd because murder she wrote and killing it he is with major crimes in profiler martial law nypd blue csi csi miami csi again cold case numbers psych standoff the mentalist justified burn notice wicked city perception and needless to say he's been a true detective of american crime since his training days so whilst the diagnose is murder the cure is comedy as this clown has has circled Caroline in the City, Seinfeld, the single guy, smart guy, Archer, Hacks, plus the TV movie Project Elf. Wait, you got to work with Elf? No, I'm so jealous. Plus a menagerie of monsters, aliens, and critters in Charmed, The X-Files, Angels, Bates Motel, Preacher, American Horror Story, where he played Mr. Critter, before becoming an astral alien in The Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian. So please help this austral alien, Jeddison, a huge Aussie, g'day, and a hey, weren't you in that other thing? To this actor, singer, writer, and muso who actually was in that other thing, like Kiss the Girls, Being John Malkovich, Vanilla Sky, Lost Souls, Sugar and Spice, Kids in America, shout out to Josh Stolberg, The Master, Black Mass, and Bloodworth, which he wrote and sings of his love for a good meaty country and western role with stints in The Lone Ranger, The Highwaymen, The Upcoming Dead Don't Hurt, The Cherokee Kid, Long By, Last Rites of Ransom Pride, Wild, which was without the West but with a spoon, plus his critically acclaimed role as Dan Doherty in Deadwood, one might think it was high noon on this genuine icon's career. But nope, it'll be the last of us putting me six feet under if I was to try and fit it all in, that's what she said, without evidence or a week spare to write everything this night of badass has accomplished, even if he's done small, than most killer dilettantes who are just chasing ghosts. So please help me welcome to the torture chamber with a big scary surprise, Sydney, for our very first guest who has been chased by ghosts when his dreams seeped into reality during Wes Craver's new nightmare, which led to a pain in his neck by the vampire in Brooklyn before he left a lump in our throats as one of the original victims when, oh my god, they killed Kenny, the cameraman, in Scream. So zip up the franks and beans and take the meatloaf out of our mouth because there's something about Mary's brother that we don't know. Luckily, he's here to tell us or take us to Hallenbach because he's a devilishly talented Mr. W. Earl Brown. Yay! Welcome to the torture chamber. How are you going? Goodness gracious me. Okay, you you have to send me a written copy of what you just 
what you just uh, wrote. I have to say that I'm, I'm mightily impressed. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> I, you're impressed. Goodness gracious me, looking at your career. I literally have most of those stuff. All, all that's like, um, I have being John Malkovich, obviously I have Scream, something about Mary. I Like all this stuff on DVD. I even have, I had, I had something about Mary poster which went missing but anyways I, I still have my Scream 3 poster which I have on my wall and I do have Scream 2 I have the Scream 2 one sheet from 1997 or 90 when it wherever it came on VHS probably 98 VHS yes. came out in theaters in 97 that's right yeah on Christmas of 97 that's because I was I went to see it I was filming there's something about Mary in Miami Yep. And I went to the theater to see Scream 2. Oh, wow. I'm so excited, really. I I was 12 years old. Mum came home from the video shop. Kids back then, we had video shops. We'd actually used to have to go to a second location to maybe, hopefully, get the movies we wanted to watch, if they were in, unless they'd been hired out. Yeah, she comes home and she goes, oh, I, I hired a movie. And usually we would go together. She goes, oh, it's called Scream. And neither of us had heard of it. But I had vaguely seen the Drew Barrymore. I can't remember who was hosting that year. The MTV Movie Awards did the send-up of it. So I remember seeing that vaguely in the background. That's all I knew of Scream, that Drew Barrymore was in it. And she goes, oh, I, I saw the cover and it said, solving this mystery is going to be murder. And I always remembered this because she was so excited because we loved a good murder mystery. We had no idea what was coming, Earl. Oh, my goodness gracious me. We lied there in my mum's bed and it scared the shit out of us, I tell you that. And I have been obsessed ever since. Well, see, that that was the one I when I was 13. Yeah. 13 and 14, my freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. It was Halloween, Animal House, and Star Wars. Yep. Those were the big three films that came out right at that impressionable age. Now, I predate renting, you know, videotapes. So we had to go to the movie theaters. And I went to see those films multiple times. And that's really where the seed was planted. I remember the scene in Animal House where Belushi pours the mustard on himself. It's a wordless shot. And I remember thinking, man, that looks like fun. I'd love to work in movies. You know, then for that following generation, Scream and something about Mary were sort of that generation's versions of Halloween and Animal House. And then, uh, you know, now as I'm part of the Star Wars universe, so... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of come full circle. Goodness gracious me. What type of legends and icons come on this shitty little show? Blows my mind. Well, I would I would hes hesitate to call myself an icon but uh, or a legend either. That is not I've, true. I've been in a few legendary projects. Uh, that That is not true. That is not true. I think you are devaluing yourself there because when you're an actor who people go, oh, it's that guy again. They're recognizing you, but not recognize you. They're recognizing your work. That is iconic. Well, thank you. I have created a couple of characters that were famous and well-known. My name is not. But I, I know my goal when I started this, when because I, I come from a working class background in Kentucky. And to say that I was going to move away to the big city and become an actor was just unheard of and seemingly impossible. My goal was I, w I wanted to have a comfortable life. I wanted to be able to raise a family and I wanted to be able to do it doing things that I love. So achieved that. When you list all those credits, it makes me proud. It makes me feel old because I've been doing this a long fucking time. Not old experience. <laughs> That's what I was telling my wife. But I said, it hit me. I, I have now become the grizzled old veteran on sets that the young actors come up and want to hear stories because I was that. Well, I still am that way to a degree when I work with somebody new. But uh, but yeah. That's it. Well, actually, speaking of someone new now, we you are our first representation from Scream. We've had a lot of, as you've seen, like a lot of amazing guests come on this show from a lot of franchises and stuff like that. Not yet Scream, but 
We have had from Stab. <laughs> who, who, who in Stab? Craig Bjorko is listed as playing Cotton Weary in last year's Five Cream, I'm going to call it. <laughs> now, I find this fascinating because you've done 156 film and TV shows or something like that on your IMDb. Bjorko has also done that many. The only crossover here is a fictional film that he was never in, that he's only listed in. <laughs> And I asked him before, I asked him before, I said, have you ever crossed paths with Earl? And nope. And I'm like, how is this possible? How is this possible? that? Well, it, it will likely happen at some point. Yeah, that's it. Uh, anyways, we'll move on because how we actually connected was friend of the show, past guest Josh Stolberg had asked his followers about filming uh, Skill House and getting by the censors. And I had seen that I sort of jumped in and I said, well, where's Craven when he was filming? I think it was Scream. I, I might have said Scream too, actually. I said that he had filmed the scene a bit more graphically than what was intended so that the censors would cut out the bits that he didn't want and keep the cut that he did want. And I, ever since I found that out, when I was like, as I say, 12 or 13, I thought that was just masterful and I kept that in my mind. Then suddenly, listeners, this man named W.L. Brown jumps in and says, yep, that was me. And it blew my mind, like, holy shit, what, what, you know, what's going on? Um, So could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Well, that's from the, well, there's, there's a couple of stories in regards to the first scream. Yeah. Um, first of all, did you know Wes was almost fired from the film? No, I knew he didn't want to do it, but... Oh, they were going to launch Dimension, and they had bought Scary Movie, which was the original title of Scream. And Wes had turned it down initially, and then they came back around a second time. He was trying to get out of horror, and he felt like he had already done the meta-commentary thing with New Nightmare, yep. which I also worked on. Mm -hmm. So when he signed on to do Scream, we had a dinner at his house, all of us, and he said, "I one thing I want all of us to keep in mind as we progress that this is a satire of the genre. So it's funny, but never fall into the trap of playing funny because if this is not scary, the humor won't work. That's a valuable lesson I learned on Vampire in Brooklyn, which I also worked mm -hmm. on. So anyway, we got there. The first thing he shot was the, the scenes with Drew, the opening of the film. And Bob Weinstein called and said, I, I'm watching these dailies. This is terrible. I don't even see a movie here. We're going to have to make some changes. So unbeknownst to the rest of us, because we arrived toward the end of that week, for a week or two weeks, Wes was editing all day and shooting at night because we were on night schedule for most of the movie. Because he said, no, trust me, it's here. It's here. So he's working with his editor to, to save the job. Well, he did. Well, now that's an iconic scene. It's taught in film schools. You know, it's, it's build of tension. That always comes to my mind when I'm talking about screen. the parts that we edited out. It was Steve's murder where the intestines fall out of his, his body cavity when she looks out the window, which was part of that first scene. And then it was my death when they cut my throat because this look of pity in my eyes as I look at him like, I can't believe you've done this to me. And Wes said they said it was too graphic and it was too disturbing. And he said, what, what about the Kenny death is disturbed? The look in his eyes. And Wes said, well, it's murder. It should be disturbing. So he had to cut a few frames out. In the director's cut that was eventually re-released on DVD, that stuff's put back in there. But it was the look of pity in my eyes as I look up into Ghostface after my blood coming out of my neck. 
So mm-hmm. those were the two elements that that he had to trim to avoid an NC-17. So I know West did that because he knew he had to give them something to do. So I think the graphic of the intestines and stuff may have been a little over the top, knowing he can cut that. But the part with the Kenny murder, he was sort of aghast at that note. But in a few frames, it was just a few. I saw the, the differences. Oh, wow. I haven't seen the director's cut. I. I didn't know it existed. How do I not know it existed? Well, that's what's released. That's what came out. If you have a DVD of later, you have his initial cut. They put that stuff back in. Uh, I say I have an original DVD when it yeah. first was released. Mm-hmm. It was transferred over. And I have it on VHS as well, of course. Uh, I have well, still all my old VHSs. Anyway, just last thing on screen, and we'll move on to the music. I went out to my backyard recently and hanging on my neighbor's clothesline upside down was Drew Barrymore's face with the hand. And I nearly lost my shit and nearly stole it off my 16, 17-year-old neighbor, who I'm guessing that's who it belongs to, is their daughter, not you know, <laughs> the actual adults. So I need to ask them where they got it from and try to get one myself because I really desperately want one i was so proud though that my own nephew who i raised won't watch anything that i try to get him to watch though i did get him to watch something about mary recently and he (laughs) could not believe what he was watching but we'll get onto that later anyways i could as i say talk about scream all day but we have a boat to catch on the big river so have you done many musicals because i didn't see any professionally no when i was in theater school my sights were always set on tv film Because I knew financially to live the life I wanted to live. (laughs) Unless you are a star who can sell tickets into a theater, you're not going to make a whole lot of money. You know, you can make get by money, but uh, that's not what I wanted. So I did numerous plays in Chicago, but I never did musicals. I play music quite often. I play with a, a band out here and I would love to do a musical at some point. But as of yet, no, I have not done a professional musical. My friend Steve Earle has written or is currently working on a musical. Steve Earle, the singer-songwriter, we're going to talk about Big River, which was written by Roger Miller, who is a Nashville songwriter. Steve is working on this project that I, I haven't bugged him about it yet, but I do would like to play a role in it if it happens. Yeah, um, They're not even at the workshop stage yet. They're still working on the book, and he's written most of the music. So There is a... I haven't heard the music, so I can't say if it is actually country and western. I'm guessing it is. It's called Shuck. It's a musical comedy that's currently on Broadway at the moment. I'd, I'd suggest check that out because I know that you started off in comedy. Yeah. Um, this is apparently really, really funny. And it's an original musical, Earl, an original, not based on a novel, not based on a movie, not based on someone's back catalogue. It's not a jukebox musical. Yeah. Not a fucking jukebox musical. It is heaven sent an original musical. When did it open? Only a couple of months ago. Oh, no. See, I shot, Um, I was in New York for, well, when COVID disturbed it, but I was there for about four months back at the end of, God, what year is it? 21 and 22. So I got over to see um, David Byrne's show, which I absolutely adored. I loved yep. it. American Utopia. And then I saw the Moulin Rouge musical, which I wasn't all that big a fan of. Yep. But no, I, I will, next time I'm in New York, hopefully it will still be running and I will go get shucked. Yes. Wait, is that the thing that... Uh, is a uh, Shane McNally? Is that his? It, hang on. Yes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know. Uh, yes, it's him and and uh, Brandy Clark. I think. So I I think may have done the musical. 
Yes. Yes, I, I have heard of this. Shane, yeah, Shane McAnally. Yeah, Shane is a, a big songwriter, producer in Nashville. And I did see something about him doing a musical. And that that's it. So, yeah. yeah. So, yes, I have heard of it. So, and it might be right up your alley being a Southern boy, yeah. I think, and being a country. Yeah. Oh, that. well, my band is more country than it is rock. I, mean, I call it country music with loud rock guitars. But, yeah, I mean, the posters you see behind me, there's Anthrax. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they're my, the movie posters. And, and there's a Steve Earle poster. But yeah. up above me, dude, there's there's Queen, Zeppelin, Stones, Kiss, of course, Motorhead, Angus Young, ACDC, Beatles, Skinner. I'll show you when we're done off the camera upward so you can <laughs> you can see it all. But no, I, my musical tastes run the gamut. I, I mean, yeah. um, there's very little that if it's genuine that I, I don't like, I don't like a lot of slick, slick pop stuff. A lot of the stuff that comes out of Nashville, like on music row is way too slick for my taste. I love the left of the dial country. Yeah. I have no idea what it is, but, but like, um, you know, Haggard, I mean, so many of my heroes I've befriended due to Deadwood, yep. you know, Merle Haggard was one hag was a huge Deadwood fan. And, uh, to sit there and talk to somebody that, and I became, well, hell I'm wearing a Chris Christopherson t-shirt. Yep. You know, I've done two movies with Chris. Yeah, true. So, um, you know, the, they were my heroes as a kid. And oh, were they? Yeah, my first concert, I was four years old. My mother took me to see Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton. Oh, wow. Oh, and it was the first time I'd ever seen people in person that we watched on television. This was 1968. So it was this epiphany to me, like, oh, my God, they're real people. My mother is still is a huge music fan. So every country or gospel act that existed in the late 60s, 70s, I saw them. But then when puberty hit, I bought Kiss Alive with my birthday money because it came out three <laughs> days after I turned 12 years old. And that blew my mind. And so then it became all about hard rock and metal. And then punk came along. I mean, you'll see there's a Kiss banner here hanging next to me right now as we speak. Until I moved away to Chicago to go to theater school. And I was so damn homesick. And the cool rock station in Chicago, WXRT, played Steve Earle. And the first time I heard this song, Copperhead Road, I was like, holy shit, this is, a, this is, this is country music, but it's kind of metal, too. I was learning to play at that point, learning to play guitar. So that kind of led me back around hearing twang music, you know, kind of salve my homesickness. So Steve kind of opened the door back to me thinking, you know, Merle Haggard was cool and Waylon and all those guys. So as I learned to play and sing, the first record I really sat down with and picked up songs that I could sing to people was Springsteen's Nebraska. And then I sat there with with Will, Will Nelson live and picked out those until I gained control again would be the first country song written by Rodney Crowell, made a hit by Willie Nelson. Yeah. So so yeah, my my tastes and and are all and these records that you you suggested dead ringer i guess obviously because of the meatloaf connection now yes. when i think of thrash i mean i i think of slayer and anthrax yeah. and metallica and megadeth and exodus and you know those those bands um exodus we haven't done i don't i don't know who they are so i'm, I'm picking blindly here when it comes <laughs> to the albums we had a proper metal representation now all four of us are musical fans more than we are metal fans i'm more punk if anything <laughs> but yeah no it, you chose the musical though you chose big river mm -hmm. now can you tell our listeners why you chose this one well you had suggested dead ringer and so meatloaf and, and steinman you know they met in musical theater so the records are very theatrical i wouldn't call meatloaf thrash uh, you know, it is rock music and it's grandiose and huge, which most thrash and metal is grandiose and huge. 
So it could sort of fit in those boxes. Yeah. So it's not your your typical kind of hard rock, especially this record and Bad Out of Hell. One of my longtime favorites, I saw it on Broadway in its original production right after it won the Tony, was Big River, which was written by Roger Miller, who was a Nashville singer-songwriter of quite a bit of fame in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. The songs themselves, they're pretty simple country songs, three quarters. I think, you know, the arranger added some extra chords in there, but it always stuck with me. I just absolutely love the music from it. And I still have right here my original vinyl from, what was it, 1985? Yeah, 85. Performance I saw, John Goodman was in it playing Pat Finn. And at the time, of course, nobody knew who he was. It was his final performance because they did a curtain speech saying he was leaving, he was going to do a movie in Hollywood, which I think was Revenge of the Nerds. And when I worked with John years later on a movie and I brought up, I said, I was actually in the audience sitting on the third row at your curtain speech. And he was talking about, oh, he remembered that performance. So yeah, and then when we spoke a few weeks ago, I had just gone to a, a dinner party and they had karaoke and my daughter was singing stuff from musicals. And I said, well, I got a music and I did government, which I had not sang in 25 or 30 years. That yeah. used to be my audition song when I would have to sing because which was Pat Finn, John Goodman's song. So that's what made me pick Big River. It was fresh in my mind when we corresponded. Yeah. And I remember it as one of my favorite musical experiences on Broadway uh, as a audience member. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's why. Awesome. I, I didn't know it. I mean, I knew what it was. I knew what it was about. I knew that mm-hmm. there was an Australian production uh, with Cameron Daddo, I think it was. Yeah, Cameron Daddo, who was One of the Daddo brothers. You know, it's an adaptation. Yeah, of Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. When it was first produced on Broadway, there was productions everywhere. And then Deaf Theatre West here in L.A. did a production, oh, at least a decade ago, that made quite the splash, uh, uh, pun intended. And that's really the last gasp of the musical. I don't know of anyone doing it since. It hasn't been revived. Uh, but Deaf Theatre West made, I, I think they moved it to New York. Yeah, they did. Which Troy Kotzer was in it, who ended up winning the Oscar last year. And uh, I saw he and Paul Racy. I, I used to play softball with Paul for years. One of the first plays I saw when I moved to L.A., I knew Paul through softball, was they did um, Of Mice and Men at Deaf Theatre West. Now, Paul grew up, his parents were deaf, so Paul was Coda. And those guys blew me away at how damn good they were. And then Paul could never make a living at it, you know, a full time. I would see him occasionally pop up, but then he got the Sound of Metal and he got the Oscar nomination two years ago. And then damned if Troy didn't win the Oscar the next year for Coda. So yeah, their production, I don't think Paul was in Big River, but I I know Troy was involved. Again, the musical is kind of, that's been at least a decade. You know, a lot of people don't know it. Yeah, it was 2003. That's how long ago Deaf Theatres was? Yeah. Wow. 2003. Michael Arden was in it, who's just directed the current revival of Parade on Broadway. Yeah, so I thought the songs were fantastic Mm -hmm. as standalone songs. The story, I don't think, was very clear in the recording. And this was the 80s, so it was the time of telling your story through the music or when they were at least starting to a lot more predominantly, whereas before then it was very much... Here's our acting. Now we break out into song and then we go back into the story. Which is what this show is. Yeah. So it it loses a star for me because I've given it four stars. I didn't write a review this time because I don't have my co-host here. And I sort of thought, well, you know, both the albums, there's no yin and yang to to work off. I won't write a review, but I um, just the notes that I've got. the, The only clear song I thought was Muddy Waters. Yeah. Because the vibe you get 
you get that feeling. I know pretty much every song that's on this I can recall. But I can yeah. see if you didn't know the Huck Finn story, if you just sat down with the record wanting to absorb the whole story, uh, no, it doesn't tell the whole story. You need the spoken scenes to, to really get it all. Yeah, I've read both Huckleberry Finn mm-hmm. and Tom Sawyer. I've seen... Like the Elijah Wood movie I saw, I think it was a 64 movie or something like that. I saw the Tom and Huck, Brad Renfro, Jonathan Taylor Thomas movie. That was easy knowing the story. And and I was able, I put on the Elijah Wood one from, I think it was 92. Um, It's on Disney Plus while I was listening to it. And then Meatloaf came on because the two albums together were shorter than the movie. <laughs> I knew when the sun goes down and that um, there was something else that I, I can't remember. I forgot to write the song title down, sung by a woman. And it, it just sounded like it could have been a country standard. It was quite sweet. A leave is not the only way to go. Possibly. Probably. That's Huck and Mary Jane. Yeah. But they are, they are. There are several of these songs that could be, you know, taken apart from the musical and great singles country music waiting for the light government's funny as hell a river in the rain's my favorite uh, as far as stand that and government of course and uh yeah leaving is not the only way you ought to been here with me yeah there's so there's a lot of great songs catchy too like i huckleberry me kept getting stuck in my head when mm-hmm. i was in the kitchen the royal nunsuch i oh, i did actually start to look that up but then i got stuck reading about nunsuch records and then i was like i moved on to something else and i forgot to look up what is a nunsuch well that's the one that's it, i think that the duke that was renee abrigeois who played the role yep um that's him singing it oh he was in the little mermaid as the chef i worked with him on um well, we, we were on a show together because I remember talking about Big River. Yeah. God, what was it? We were shooting in New Mexico. I don't remember, but I did get a chance to cross paths with him once. Oh, God. I have your career. There's six pages, one, two, three, four, five pages of the work that you have done on the back of here. That was to do your introduction and to find where the jokes are. Well, you, you did a good job. Thank you. And then, right, I have to translate those five pages into this one page. And sort out what my priority topics are. Anyways, um, so I, I couldn't tell you what show that was either. I think it was that we, it never aired. It was a pilot for The Sixth Gun. I think that was the one, which was, a, it was a graphic novel series. I'm pretty sure that's the one we were both in, but don't quote me on that. It's weird when, you know, hell, I, I have to go to IMDb to remember some things, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a few things I've done that I've never seen. You know, I just like, eh, not my cup of tea, but um yeah. yeah, I asked Adam Baldwin when he lost track or when he started to lose track of all the titles. And he's like, after the bloody second one, I'm like, yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised because I know it's just a job. Some of them are. The, uh, occasionally, you know, it's because my wife, uh, she wanted to be a full time mom. So she stopped working full time and she worked. She had some freelance gigs along the way. But there would be times where like, oh, shit, I'm broke. And, you know, and and there were things I did just for the paycheck. Early on in my career, I encountered a few older actors who were completely phoning it in, who didn't give two shits. Uh, There was a Mm -hmm. I I don't want to name names, but I was doing a film with this actor and there was an adaptation of a novel that I absolutely loved the book. And I was still early in my career and I was trying anything just to get an audition for the adaptation of this novel. Well, this other he was in it. And we were wrapping the movie we were on, and he was about to go to Memphis to shoot this film. And he goes, hey, I heard you talking about that book. Uh, What's it about? Can you tell me? 
Like he hadn't even read the fucking script, you know? And I swore I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to not give yeah. two shits, you know? So if you hire me, I'm going to do my homework and I'm going to show up. I just won't promise yeah. I'll watch it. So, uh, yeah. Adam, I'm not, neither of us are accusing you of doing that. Please don't come after me in my DMs. Anyways, he deleted his Twitter anyway when Elon Musk bought it. I know he's, he's a controversial figure. Yeah. You've never worked with him, have you? No. How's that possible? How is this possible that you, Craig, and Adam? Yeah. Neither of well, eventually, anyway, someday. Sorry. He, he loves to wear his politics on his sleeve and enter into arguments on the internet. Yeah. You know, I, I know, well, there's a neighbor of mine who's the left-wing version of that, you know, and I, I just, get, I, I quit Twitter, um, you know, almost a year ago. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> um, look, that's actually how me and Adam connected was me going head-to-head with him about his politics. And I, I, I must have said the right thing. <laughs> okay, now, so just back on Big River, Tuakan Amphitheater in Utah, which is where Thrush and Treasure host Mr. J Wags or Jonathan Wagner is currently performing as Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And he's also doing Hunchback in Notre Dame and Tarzan. So if you're in the area, book tickets, details are below. Now they did Big River a couple of years ago. I don't know when it was. And I saw a video of it recently and they actually have a flood system because it's an outdoor amphitheater. It's this huge stage right and they do three shows at once so that's how big this place is that they can swap out three sets over the week but they have a flood system and they're actually using it again for tarzan they used it for big river when i was researching this i saw a snippet i think i'm pretty certain it was muddy waters and so it was this really exciting moment of him singing it and they're on the raft on the raft water's actually coming in wow on the stage I want to go there so badly and play on that stage and design something. What theater is it? Um, Tuakan Amphitheater. Where is it at? It's uh, it's in Saint George, Utah. Uh, yeah, I don't know it. Yeah, that, like they have a lot of bands play mm-hmm. throughout the year, but then there'll be like four or five months that they'll do three musicals in the amphitheater. So that's all they'll have there, and I don't know how that's going to go. I I forgot to ask Jonathan how you do three shows where one of them uses a flood system. Now, this flood system looks like it's coming through nature. It doesn't, it's not like a tank. It's not, you know, there's no concrete. It looks like rocks. Mm -hmm. So you actually see it come down waterfalls from the back. And then it goes through like this um, river of rocks sort of thing. Or it's smooth. I want to know, are they fake rocks? Because if they're real rocks, as in, dirty and dusty that water's going to collect dirt and dust and bring it onto the stage and then when you wash it away it's going to leave mud so who are these poor souls that have to keep sweeping and hosing off the stage every night so that the next night swap it out with a completely different show what goodness gracious anyways it just blew my mind they're they're the interns that are going to theater school and are happy to have picked up a job in the summer. That's who's getting to do it. Keep at it, kids. It is worth it. All these shitty jobs along the yeah. way. The apprentice program, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, but anyways, after a long trip up the river, we've worked up an appetite. So we're gonna go cook some meatloaf. G'day listeners, Aaron here. We thought we'd better send a spy to Broadway to check out the shows for us. 
So here for today's review is our Broadway spy, Spencer. This week, we're taking a break from our Broadway box office breakdown to talk about a play that is in the theme, Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, which is playing off-Broadway at the Theatre at St. Clement's until July 30th. It stars Tony Award winner John Rubenstein as President Eisenhower. This play was right up my alley. I was lucky enough to be invited by the show to review it and come see it. It truly is like right up my alley. I love the West Wing. I love politics. I love American politics. I love presidential history. I've always been fascinated by it. So this show was just, you know, perfect for me. It reminds me of what it means to have a important, you know, and powerful legacy. What it really is, is talking about how Eisenhower was very much a figure that was at the time thought of just as, you know, a president that he wasn't really thought of as the most accomplished president because, of course, most of Eisenhower's big accomplishments were done before he sat in the White House. And so just to, to get to learn more about about him and about just what Eisenhower did for this country, both pre-White House and post-White House and during the White House, talking about how his ranking was in order of greatness and how it's kept going up the longer it's been since its term he's now fifth on the list and just you know really thinking about what eisenhower did for this country the thing that also made it really cool for me is it's adapted from his memoirs some speeches and some letters and really just felt very authentic to me it, the performance by by john rubenstein is incredible reminded me of Eisenhower. I mean, that that's, you know, you want someone who can embody a character, and that's something that's really difficult to do, especially when it's a real person and such an iconic figure in our history as well. And, you know, for me, I wasn't alive at the time of Eisenhower, and so really was uh, what he did both before the White House with, with the different wars and with the commanding NATO was just really, really fascinating, and the play just, it flew by. I forgot that it was, you know, just just him, because it felt like this more immersive thing. The set design by Michael Deegan and Sarah Conley really made you feel like you're in his living room. Costume design by Sarah Conley also. Again, you know, it's it, costume design when it's real people is something that I've always found very, very interesting, and it's something that I just thought was done very well here. I really, really loved this show. Um, and I, I just, I really would love everyone to, to go and see it. It's at the Theater at St. Clement's, which is off-Broadway, playing until July 30th. It truly is an incredible play that just brings you back in time. And it, it's the performance of a lifetime. Go see it off-Broadway. John Rubenstein and Eisenhower, this piece of ground at the Theatre at St. Clements. You're listening to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, and I'm joined by actor, singer, and dead ringer for Meatloaf. It's W.L. Brown. Now, I have to ask this because I am a shithead. How many people call you Whirl? <laughs> um, it happens every now and again just from people who see my name on the internet or, or my name 
you know, in credits. It does yep. happen, but I, I don't have an exact. My name is William Earl Brown, but I was called Earl from the time I was born. I was on a must join for the movie The Babe, which means I had already worked on a union film before. And you can delay membership until, you know, you get six months from the time you log into one. You have six months to join the union. So I was on a must join. I was beyond my six month grace period when I was working on the babe. So I had to go down to the union office when they opened at nine o'clock in the morning because I had to be on set at one o'clock in the afternoon. So I got there and I'm sorry, there's already an Earl Brown because you can't have the same name. That's a rule now. And there was a William Brown who I knew. And I remembered the name W. Earl Brown from a, an Elvis Presley record, If I Can Dream. Yeah, I got that written down. He was a songwriter. Yeah. And I took it from that. Now, it's ironic. When in Sacred Cowboys, we actually had some songs placed in films. There's a couple of films with our songs. So I had to join ASCAP, oh, where wow. W. Earl Brown. So I had to become, as a songwriter, William Earl Brown. It's all quite confusing. But I loved watching Blurman's Elvis because W. Earl Brown is portrayed when the he was the arranger for the Elvis television special, and they wrote If I Can Dream, he wrote it for that show, which is portrayed in Elvis, the film. Ah, I'm halfway through that, and my mum spoiled it for me. And then Spencer said, oh, it's so shit, I hate it. So I just didn't go back to it. I'm like, great, you have both ruined it for me now. I'm not going to bother. But now I will bother, because... I'm going to get a giggle out of that. So occasionally there will be credits that will pop up on my IMDb that are him. Like, I didn't know you arranged a Barbara Streisand special. And no, I didn't. But yes, Meatloaf, that came about with um, VH1 was doing their movies that rock. And Meatloaf was one of the first three that they produced. Uh, And it was far and away the most successful of the three. We had Jim McBride directed it. And Jim had been a rather successful film director, feature film director. And then he did the Jerry Lewis biopic, which was kind of raked over the coals by the critics. And he was in movie jail for features. So VH1 offered him this. And he's a big reason why the movie's so damn good. Because judged on its own merits, I mean, those films were... Behind the music had been a big hit for them. You know, and it's about the rise to success and then the downfall caused by ego and drugs and then the the phoenix rising from the flames. Pretty much every fucking band story they told, that's the way, those were the three acts they told it in. Mm-hmm. And our movie was, was exactly that. We couldn't change anything because Steinman and Meatloaf hated each other at that point. Jim Steinman wrote all the songs, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and then the, the, the guy that had been their manager, we could not change a single word of dialogue in the script. So Jim and I would sit there like, okay, how can we make this scene come to life? Because it's so obvious and on the nose. How can we play against this? And we ended up making, a, as a cable TV movie, a pretty good film. So so that's how I got to know Meatloaf. And I still consider Bad Out of Hell one of my all-time favorite records. It's an extraordinary album. As you know, they both came out of musical theater with uh, More Than You Deserve, which is actually a song on Dead Ringer, was a, a musical that they were doing together. That's where they met, was Meatloaf auditioning for it. Have you read the plot? Of the original? Yeah, yeah. What is that show? I want to see it so badly because this sounds wacky. But he took pieces of it, like Total Eclipse from the Heart. I think he took like that middle section out of, I don't know if it was that or Neverland. Jim wrote several musicals, but he would take pieces of them and put in his pop stuff. Now, the funny thing about Steinman, I mean, you know, the songs are, they're so theatrical and huge and grandiose. 
he was hired to do a Def Leppard record. Oh, wow. Like, I want to hear yes. those tapes. After Pyromania, and they were so successful, Jim had had hits with uh, Bonnie Tyler, with Air Supply, with Barry Manilow. So he was hired to do a Def Leppard record. And they worked together for I don't know how long. But the tapes were dumped. No one ever heard them. What? Oh, yeah, my God. I would love to get my hands on those. If anyone is listening out there, please, we want to hear these. Yes, that has yes. the Jim Steinman, Def Leppard, his, what the album became, Hysteria, because they went back with Mutt Lang. But uh, but anyway, this Dead Ringer, probably know the story behind it. The follow-up album that Jim had written was called Renegade Angels. And Meatloaf, for whatever reason, Meatloaf lost his voice. You know, I, I knew Meat pretty well. And I'm still dear friends with his daughters. That's the mm-hmm. the nicest thing is a, I have a lifelong friendship with both of them. And he and Jim were like an odd pair. Meatloaf was in, had an enormous voice, was incredibly charismatic, full of energy. Jim was the exact opposite of that. Jim was this nebbish, shy, who, who had this vision, who desperately wanted to be the cool guy. Instead of embracing his oddness, you know, a la Joey Ramone, who became the coolest dude on the planet because... He was fucking Joey, you know, Jim, Jim and Meat had this love hate relationship. And again, they were on the outs when we made that movie in 2000. And I said to uh, Zach throwing the guy that was playing Steinman in the movie, I said, I would love to sit those two guys down and go, look, you guys are both multimillionaires because of each other. If you had not met one another, if you did not have that collaboration, neither of your careers would have exploded. But Jimmy wrote Renegade Angels for Meatloaf, and Meatloaf's voice had gone out. So he had been tracking on it since like 1978. So Jimmy decided, Jimmy wanted to be the rock star himself. He just didn't have a voice, and he didn't have the charisma. And so Jimmy made Bad for Good, which was the original Renegade Angel, which ironically, Meatloaf would go on to record. I think there's like eight or nine songs. Meatloaf did at least six of them that he put on other albums eventually through the years. But Dead Ringer came up finally, um, God, when did they, they recorded it in like 80 or early 81. Um, I, you know, it To me, and I always felt that way and going back and revisiting it, I still feel that way. It's a pale imitation of Bat Out of Hell. Um, you know, it kind of takes the, the what worked in Bat and Meatloaf produced it with, and they didn't have that outside ear like Todd Rundgren did the first record. And Todd kind of had this deft touch with humor. He knew when to lay back. He knew when to let Meatloaf go huge. And um, and Dead Ringers just, it pales in comparison because it's a very similar album. But that being said, I, I like it when, when they finally broke up and Meatloaf went on and did um, um, Stop When I'm Blind. I forget what the other album was. When he tried to sound like an 80s pop star, those records are unlistenable. So Dead Ringers better than that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it starts out, the, the peel out, There's it's an overture. It's a fucking play. Meatloaf, I grew up with, obviously, in Rocky Horror, yeah. as I've said numerous times on this show, watching that as a three, four-year-old. So that's always, like, I've always loved Meatloaf, based purely on, on Rocky Horror, and also just knowing his music from Bat Out of Hell, the first one. And obviously the second one, I Would Do Anything for Love, was a massive hit. That yeah. was huge. It was played constantly. Yeah, that was in 92. And still is, you know, wedding song and a love song for people. Um, but I didn't know this one. I'd Do Anything for Love was Bat 2, 
which was 15 years after the first one, which would have been, this one came out in 81. That was, so it's 11 years after Dead Ringer. I like it. I like that. Well, I went to, cause I bought, I bought them all when I did the movie and listened to everything and I'd thinned them out. I thought I still had Dead Ringer because when I went to get my big, big river vinyl, I bought Dead Ringer on cassette back in 1981. But when I did the movie, I bought the CD. It's no longer in my, I pulled it out. I got rid of it. So I don't have it anymore, but there's still like, um, oh God, what was the song? Let me look. Well, I think, you know, some of these songs, I wonder if Jimmy did not write them kind of as a screw you to Meatloaf. Like I'm going to love her for both of us. Because Meatloaf met Leslie when they were re- yeah. starting to record the second record. I liked that song. I thought that was one of the strongest on the album. Jimmy produced, I know he produced Dead Ringer. He and Jimmy Iovine, they did Dead Ringer and they did one of the other songs on here. Uh, that they produced. I think I don't. I don't know. Well, more than you deserve is funny as hell. If you listen to the lyrics, it, you know it's he falls in love with a whore. Yes, he goes. <laughs> yeah, listen, boy. I saw you making love. Yeah, to, I, to my best friend, and then two of my friends. And, uh, so uh, it's quite funny. And he's like, just go for it. Yeah. Um. And every time mm-hmm. he would say, "Listen, boy," I would think of an old timely prospector. I'll say, I'll say, "Listen, boy," like that. That's. But I gave this four and a half stars. I actually really, really like this album. Not as necessarily a meatloaf album because we know meatloaf, and as we say. And Jim, they had a brand, Mm -hmm. and that brand was very, very clear in their work. I love this as a rock and roll heavy metal album because there were some bluesy numbers in there. There was some theatrics in there. There was some craziness, and there was a lot of camp in there. I I thought it was – I really liked it. Well, listening to the bat – and well, well, half the E Street band is on here. Davey Johnstone from Elton's band, and then it's Roy Bitten, it's Max Weinberg. I think uh, uh, Liberty DeVito drummed a couple of these, which was Billy Joel's. So it was kind of a who's who of, of that period of singer-songwriter rock music. The song Bat Out of Hell wanted to be Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road. And then the song on here, um, um, when, well, Peel Out, uh, Peel Out is, a, it's a remake, a redone of, of Born to Run thematically and everything. So that's that's kind of what Jimmy was aiming toward. I loved uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town when Springsteen stripped down everything is is my favorite period of Bruce's stuff. And I loved I loved um, Born to Run. The first two albums, again, I like them, but I'm not crazy about them. But that grandiose, huge, enormous Phil Spector sound. And that was Jimmy's thing. You know, Jim Steinman. There's, I mean, Jim had an enormous amount of success with a bunch of other artists. Oh, that song, um, um, what's on here, Read, Read Him and Weep was re-recorded by Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow had a huge hit with it. I think Jim rewrote a couple of the lyrics. It's oh, a nice. little bit different, but you can look it up. It's on uh, one of Manilow's greatest hits records, but it was here in the States was a big, huge hit. Now, what was Meat's career in Australia? I knew in the States, it kind of ebbed and flowed, but he still was huge in Europe, like Ireland and, and England. You know, He still filled arenas for the entire time. And here in the States, he went from that to, you know, playing theaters to maybe even club level until anything for love put him back up. But what was it like in Australia? Was he still the rock star for 30 years as he was in England? He was. We loved him. You know, he, as I said, I would do anything for love was a massive hit here. We have a lot of bogans here, which are basically suburban rednecks, really. You know, fixing cars, listening to Meatloaf on a Sunday afternoon is the sort of childhood thing that I, I'm familiar with. Oh, yeah. Songs about cars and girls. Yeah, you know? that's it. That, that was Jimmy's thing. Yeah. Although Jimmy, 
I don't know if he drove, and he definitely didn't have much of a love life through the course of his life. So it was. I think Jimmy had this idealized version of who he wished he was. I talked to him after we did the movie. He called me, oh, wow, you know, and I had a long conversation with him. And uh, interesting dude, and I think a really talented guy. You know, those guys died within months of one another. Yeah. Jimmy went in April and then Meatloaf died. December, I think it was. Nine months later, 10 months later, something like that. So and a year ago. You were saying before the similarities to Springsteen, I'll kill you if you don't come back. I thought vaguely was reminiscent of The Bitches Back by Elton John. Oh, yeah. Sister songs. Not obviously the same, but there's the same vibe that you can hear in the two of them. Well, I'm, I was looking at the, the well, Davy Johnstone, you know, who's been Elton's guitar player for his entire career. Yeah. I wonder if that's him on guitar. It doesn't say who's on what track, or at least the info I have. Because Mick Ronson played some guitars on it. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating. Ted Neely from Jesus Christ Superstar was in the Neverland band. I had no idea. I thought that was amazing. I only saw Meatloaf live once on oh, wow. God when he was touring with Cindy Lauper. Oh, wow. That was back in like 2010 or 11, something like that. Oh, goodness me. Because his voice was leaving him. Everybody I know, and I've watched the film, when he did uh, the BBC show, the energy of that first tour was just enormous. And everybody I know that saw it, it was one of the greatest shows they'd ever seen. You know, those guys captured lightning in a bottle, and you can only do that once. Yeah. So He was also in two of my favorite worlds, Wayne's World and Spice World. Oh my God. <laughs> I get so excited. I used to have the Spice World one sheet. I wonder where that is. I have no idea. I had the Romeo Michelle one sheet, like the 90s one sheets. I had so many oh, yeah. of them. Well, I have my Australian tribute because right there is my Angus Young SG Gibson. Oh, awesome. <laughs> one of my all time favorite bands. Good old wow. Akadaka, as we call them here. And also, he was obviously in Meat, um, in Meatloaf. He was in Fight Club. Oh, yeah. Now, I love, love, love that movie. Yep, and he was great in it. Yeah, a fun fact, um, just a, a little fun fact. The um, Okay, so I, I named in book two, I named a chapter Fight Club because all the chapters are named after movies. So the first book, it's one-word titles. In the second one, it's two-word titles. In the third one, it's three-word titles, funnily enough. Anyways, okay. And there's a character in the third one named Bitty Bo which I deliberately named after Bitch Tits Bob from Fight Club <laughs> because there's a scene where, uh, spoiler alert, the character gets killed and someone else turns around and goes, his name was Bitty Bo, which was my Bob, little yeah. love letter to, and I wrote this a few years ago, like before um, Meatloaf died, so it wasn't a tribute to him or anything like that. It was just me putting little Easter eggs throughout my work of all the movies I love and stuff like that and just, you know, little hints here and there, homages. So Bitch Tits Bob is immortalized in my third novel that I published, The Toniston Tales. Go buy them online, people, and read them. Uh, anyways, I... G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, 
you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge. Though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rush decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish, so let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbaya Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina, 
Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose! she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone... In her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! That, just on the movie. So, no, not that movie. The Dead Ringer movie. I watched that. They did a movie on the album that was about Meatloaf and someone who looks like Meatloaf, who was played by Meatloaf, but his name was Marvin. And it's him and Joshua Mostel, Zero Mostel's son. Uh, Joshua was Herod in the Jesus Christ Superstar movie. So they try, they're following Meatloaf on tour trying to get backstage. Have you seen this movie at all? I did. A, I think when we did the movie, I saw it because that's been 20 years ago. Marvin is actually his birth name. His name is Marvin Lee a day. Yes. And the kids used to tease him and he hated that name. So he mm-hmm. changed it to Michael. His legal name was Michael Lee a day. But he was he had he had different origin stories of how he got the name Meatloaf as a nickname. Mm-hmm. But he was called Meatloaf from the time he was a kid. That was that was his uh, professional name. That's so rock star. Adds to the mythology of it. Uh, Cher also was on this. Yes, Queen. Yeah. Well, Steve Popovich is the reason that Bad Out of Hell got released. 
because it was it, every single major label turned them down. Everybody. Turned it down, yeah. And Steve had this small regional label, Cleveland International. Steve had been the head of A&R for Epic. So he had a track record in the big league. But he started his own small label out of Cleveland. And Steve is the guy, he just heard something. He knew there was something there. It was unique and it was different. Nobody had done anything like it. So Steve put all of his muscle behind Bat Out of Hell. And they were, Alice Cooper was doing it, the first to make music videos before there was MTV. You know, they made these films to go along with. Now, Dead Ringer came out right, MTV launched in August of 81. So Dead Ringer came out around that time. But yeah, they were making film, promotional films to go along with music before it became the thing that everyone did. But it was, it was perfect. I mean, Meatloaf said he approached all of it as an actor. He said, every song is a character. Every song that I do, I approach as, in my mind, they're a character telling a story. That was the way he thought of those things. It's sad that there was a memorial here that that Pearl and, and uh, Amanda put on, and I went to it, and that was, uh, gosh, oh, it's been, I guess, before Christmas, I don't know. And then Amanda's getting married in June, and her dad can't be there to walk her down the aisle. Unfortunately not. And obviously, Amanda had been in the tally movie with you yeah did you meet meatloaf before doing the film yeah oh i I met amanda first yeah and then i went to meet tal and amanda said something to me as we were finishing lunch we were Cantor's deli the famous place over in in hollywood and because we'd been there for an hour laughing and carrying on and she goes "You're, you're going over to the house right and i said yeah and she goes realize something my dad is the guy you're gonna meet He's funny. He's gregarious. He'll have a slap on the back and a joke to tell you. That's my dad. But there's another side to daddy that you probably won't see. And it's really dark. And and that was me. You know, there there was a, a deep seated insecurity and anger in the guy that goes back to his youth, mm-hmm. you know, and because he his old man beat the hell out of him. And I don't doubt that wasn't true, yeah. you know, and he lost his mom when he was a teenager. And, um, you know, he 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 became famous. He became everything. Of. And I think part of it was he grabbed the golden ring and he enjoyed it. But then on the other side, it never cured that pain yeah. at the center, which is also what I think made him a good artist. Yeah, that's it. As I keep saying, artists are crazy. Oh, I should should cut that out. But I do keep saying it because we put that trauma, we put that all that into our work. In order to do that, I think you have to be a little bit crazy to do it. Oh, Meatloaf was crazy. He, (laughs) Meatloaf was absolutely mad. Did he watch the movie? No, no, he didn't. I ran into him at the airport. This was so two or three years after the film. I had not seen him. Yeah. And I ran into him at LAX. We're not on the same flight, but we're like walking to, oh, Earl, hey, hey, Earl. Oh, hey, good to see you. Good. Hey, um, I didn't watch your movie. I, um, huh? I didn't watch your movie. I, I want to tell you one thing your movie did. Your movie made Leslie leave me. Oh, shit. I'm just, I said, uh, I said, me, uh, I, first of all, not my movie. I mean, I was hired to play a role, which happened to be you. So I think the movie brought up a lot of questions in there because it's portrayed as the great rock and roll love story. You know, that's the movie. And then they ended up a a few years after the movie, they broke up and divorced. So, um, Oh shit. So yeah, Meatloaf never saw it. Now we were filming on the same lot that he was, they were filming Charlie's angels on one stage. They were filming uh, the Salton sea on another stage and Mm -hmm. we were doing the Meatloaf film. So Meatloaf was there. 
And early that morning, I'm in the, the the fat suit and tuxedo and the wig and everything looking like meatloaf in 1977. I go by their makeup trailer. I start to poke my head in and a PA stops me. He goes, Mr. Aday doesn't want to be bothered. So I walk on while I hear, Earl, Earl. I turn around and it's me. Yeah. He st- and I wish I had a photograph of the look on his face when he saw me dressed as him. I, it was just this kind of dumbfounded, like, well, we were filming that day. We were doing Paradise by the Dashboard Light, filming, you know, recreating their music video version. Yep. I look out and him and Cameron Diaz are standing by the camera. <laughs> I'm on stage doing Meatloaf and there's Meatloaf. And oh. Cameron walked over because she knew I was there. So uh, that's a day I will never forget of looking out and realizing because we had a couple of hundred extras. You know, we were playing an arena or a theater. So yeah. we had extras packed in, but behind them by the camera was were those guys. Yeah. So I just want to throw in there that I loved the the Rocky Horror reenactment. I thought that was mm-hmm. hilarious the way they put you into that movie. Well, ironically, after that, well, there was a club here, a monthly club called Club Makeup, which was a glam club. It was hosted by drag queens, and at midnight they'd have a rock and roll show based on a theme. Yeah. And it would like Dee Dee Ramon was part of it. Uh, Clark, like pretty famous musicians would come and play. Well, they did a Rocky Horror theme and they called me and I went and did Eddie. And it was so successful that we remounted it that Halloween at the Hollywood Athletic Club with Richard O'Brien. So I can say I got to do Rocky with Richard O'Brien. We sang, we didn't do the whole show. We sang excerpts from it. But yeah, that was uh, another highlight of my career. Oh, goodness gracious me. Now I have to ask, what is Ghostface like in real life? Is he nice? <laughs> well, it depends on who was in Ghostface. There were different stuntmen at different yeah. times. It was never it was never Skeet or Matt. I also find it funny that they use a photo of Skeet, a, a, like a screenshot of him as Billy Loomis in the last Scream movie to say like, who was there to take that photo? Who was taking a photo of Billy Loomis at that time? <laughs> That's what I would like to know anyways you are also a teen idol with the secret cowboys now do you know any single cowboys how's the band going (laughs) well uh, we played very actively from 2005 to 2009 we there's a big music festival out here called stagecoach we were on it in 2009 and it got to the point like because the response was incredible and it was time for us to really tour like properly tour and I just couldn't literally afford to do that, you know, because of my day job. So things were where they were tucked away for several years. And we started playing when they started sniffing around about a Deadwood movie. We got the band back together. We built things up to the point that we had a monthly residency going here in L.A. And we're starting to draw and um, we'd started a record and then COVID hit. So two of the guys are in their 70s and they've both had health issues so we had to take covid extra seriously of course every club is you know here in the states was shut down for six to nine months so um we we finished the record it's on all streaming services it's called see sacred cowboys we had sirius xm outlaw country picked up one of our songs played it quite a bit we had a video company uh, that picked up a video for a different song that got some traction so yeah it's on streaming services now, as you know, there was an Australian punk band called Sacred Cowboys from the 80s. So if you click on a photograph of Sacred Cowboys, and you see skinny guys all dressed in black with eyeliner. That's not us. That's the mistake <laughs> I made. That is the mistake I made. And I'm like, is, do you have music on here? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, oh, over here. This other one. That's not uh, the punk one. Yeah. No, we're the chunky old guys in flannel shirts. That's our sacred cowboy. Experience. <laughs> this is an ongoing question. I'm trying to be as quickly as possible because I, I look, I, I wasted so much time talking about Scream at the start. Diplomacy. 
how important has this been for you in terms of your career, working with other people that then you see their work and then you have to work with them afterwards? You know, it, it, do you sort of keep your mouth shut with things you hated? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I, I, I try not to be one of these persons who, who has to force their opinion into every, every question or situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, and especially now, I kind—I I, I don't want to say I can totally pick and choose, but a lot of stuff's offered to me. I still audition maybe half the time, um, but I have the luxury of of choosing what I want to do. Yeah. And I kind of have a no assholes rule. So if, there's only a couple of people I've worked with in the past who I'm like, no fucking way do I ever want to work with them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very short list. Yeah, I can imagine just by looking. Yeah. So yeah, I haven't really run into that there was a couple of things i i did a um a radio play for it's a streaming and it's a play and there was this girl who was cast in it who was youtube famous and like as we're doing because we're all actor actors like theater trained and this one girl's like she's she's not as she's not as good she got youtube famous Mm -hmm. so she had no actor but she sort of knew it she sort of recognized that she was in over her head yeah for the most part people out here who are successful have formal training theater training most of them are, are very adept and very good. And nothing's more exhilarating than being in a really meaty scene with other great actors, you know, like working with a Vera Farmiga or Cherry Jones. You know, that's just the thrill. That's what keeps me doing it. I've kind of grown tired of all the bullshit part of show business. You know, I, I, I don't care anymore. I do care about doing work that I'm proud of and work that challenges me. So um, I count myself as a very lucky man whose dreams came true. Yeah. If I can just fit in two more quick questions. Yeah, sure. Because trust me, I had a lot more. Uh, Do you now or did you try to approach this as sensitively as possible, receive any backlash for Warren in something about Mary? Um, No, not at the time. The um, that was written to be uh, the real guy's warrantation. Yeah, who's um, he was their neighbor growing up, and he's in the movie. He plays Freddie. Oh, okay. The, Mary, w- w- the orange T-shirts when she's handing out cheeseburgers on the beach. He goes, yeah. "Mary, will you marry me?" And she goes, oh. "What about Dolores? Give me a kiss, Mary." That's one real guy. Oh, so yeah. then they decided as they got closer to production, it was the role of Warren was a little too much. Yeah. So then they went out in casting. The thing is, most people thought the majority of people thought some still do that the character really was disabled, you know, that he really was on the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, so people believed it so much that, that they thought he was real. So there wasn't a lot of outrage splash back at me, W Earl Brown. Now yeah. the flip to that is I always naively thought when you got into Hollywood, if you do special work and it does well, then special things happen. Now scream, you know, I'm, I'm good in scream. I, and, but I don't add anything special to that movie. You're you know? get killed I, I mean, by ghost face. I know, I know that. Sorry. I, I know, and <laughs> I think I'm, I'm watching it like, yeah, I'm good as Kenny. Yeah. But I felt like with Mary, I'm not the only reason. There's a lot of reasons that movie was so successful. Yeah. But Warren was a significant part of that film. Yeah. So the flip to that of people really buying me, like careers explode for far less. You know, so I'm sitting there waiting, like, all right, here we go, baby. Here comes big checks and stardom and then nothing. You know, I was complaining about that years later because I was broke and I was needing a job. You know, there were actors that I used to audition against for guest star things who had become big stars. And I am um, griping about it. And my wife said, what's your favorite thing? What are you proudest of? 
I said, what? She goes, in your career, what are you proudest of? And I said, well, Deadwood. And she goes, when was that? And I said, you know when it was, you know, 02 and then 03. She said, yes, if things had taken off after Mary, you would be the goofy fat guy in broad comedies. And that's all you would be. You never would have gotten that role in Deadwood. A, they wouldn't have seen you that way. B, you would have been too big to consider something supporting like that. Yeah. So shut up. And she was right. Yeah, that's it. Now, just lastly, you've also done historical drama, The Mandalorian and Boba Fett. Was it fun getting doled up like that? Uh, nope. No. How many hours? Initially, that was going to be one day. Yeah. And I have an enormous head. I'm not bragging, but I've been told by numerous wardrobe mistresses <laughs> that I've got the biggest one in Hollywood. The cowl was so damn tight and the ear holes are in the back. I was deaf and you know, squeeze your ear cartridge down for 30 minutes. That feels fine. But after an hour, it starts to hurt. And so, man, I when I came back on Boba Fett, there was still the same cowl. In the future, there is a possible um, future, and we got to redo that cowl. So, no, it took an hour and 20 to put on. We got it down to that. It was absolutely amazing. Every facial muscle articulates, but it was misery wearing it. We were doing the shootout in Boba Fett. We did that first with Robert Rodriguez. And it was 95 degrees out. And I thought I was going to have a heat stroke. I mean, I was just miserable. Yeah. So it tempered the fact that I got to be in Star Wars and be on Tatooine by the physical misery that I suffered. But hey, we all suffered for our art. That's it. I had no idea it was you. I had absolutely no idea. No. Well, it, thank you. Uh, see, that's what I like. Yeah. I, I like disappearing into the roles that I play. Yeah. To me, that's a mark of success when... I get to kind of disappear. And it's not like I have a shy retiring personality myself, um, but I like wearing other shoes. Yeah. You know, the flip to that is the more famous you are, the more marketable you are. So mm -hmm. never having pursued that, that sort of a fame thing. You know, I would love to be in a position where I could make movies like V I did a movie with Vigo that Vigo wrote and directed. We shot it last fall. Mm -hmm. You know, he wrote and directed his own film. Oh, wow because he has enough star power um you know to, yep. to get the investors and get the money on board mm -hmm. that's it one can only dream and i have a theory that star wars is the history of earth because why how are they talking with american accents or english accents if this is a galaxy far away a long time ago so that that's how star wars ends mm -hmm. by them coming here colonizing earth <laughs> and that's how humans came about is by jedi anyways thank you so so much for joining me i'll do all your socials all right man thanks for having me all right thank you so much it all right all righty a huge 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 thank you to earl for joining me i was so excited i was sitting there trying to hold the fangirl in which you know i'm always excited to have guests on this show because you know people whose work I've admired and loved and been inspired by will take the time and come on this show. You know, as soon as I said the word scream, every time I would get so excited inside, I'd like, could not believe that I get to do this show. So thank you so much, Earl, for taking the time. I know it took a while to get you on the show because you are so incredibly busy. You've literally just been out of this galaxy to a galaxy far, far away. Goodness gracious me. One thing I forgot to mention was that Earl and I are actually second cousins creatively, which I'll dive into a little bit further next week, but because of my connection to Buffy and Angel and doing work for Joss Whedon, and Tim Minear himself came on this show and said I am a second cousin, so it's always amazing and awesome meeting fellow Buffy Angel alumni along the way, even though I'm not really, you know, 
I'm not an alumni, I just, I contribute something fun to it and all, but still. Tim Money has said, I'm a second cousin, so I'm totally taking it. Anyways, also want to say to Earl a huge happy anniversary to There's Something About Mary, which turns 25 years old today. On the 9th of July, 1998, it had its world premiere in Los Angeles and then went wide release on the 15th of July in North America, but then obviously across the next few months, it was released around the world. In Australia, it was the 3rd of September, so we like literally had to wait nearly two months. Uh, So I figured I'm going to put this episode out on the 9th, not the 15th, as I previously advertised, because A, it's so freaking good, and B, let's just get the world premiere. Next week, we'll be back with Spencer as co-host. We've got another amazing legend on this show. I cannot believe it. It is our 99th episode. Spencer is getting promoted to producer but more on that later. And also, I just want to say to you at home, thank you so much for listening. It's been 99 episodes that I've recorded of this show. I'm so tired, but it has been a thrill. My original co-host said it would never last. And here we are. So I look forward to another 100 more, or whoever. We haven't yet reached 100, have we? I've recorded 99 of them. I look forward to another 99, and then an extra two to take us to 200. Anyways, I'm gonna go. I'm really tired. Thank you so much for listening. Look after yourselves. And I shall see you next time. Uru. All right, I'll catch you later. All right, see you, man. See ya. Like, like,